everyone. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm here as always, one of your hosts. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington, uh, previously of Chef, now of Mozilla. And greetings from Seattle, Washington. And we have a full panel uh, today. We've got, as always, uh, Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, this week, we launched the Clean Coders podcast. So, and that's in partnership with Clean Coders, obviously. So yeah, if you're looking for some of the architecture and level up stuff that they cover, uh, check it out. Great. Uh, all right. And with us is our other panelist, Scott. Scott, how's the weather in Bend, Oregon today? It's doing pretty good. So just uh, writing a lot of TypeScript, doing a lot of AWS these days. So excited to be here today. Awesome. We're glad to have you. And we're also very glad to have our new panel, regular panelist, uh, Tyler Bird. Tyler, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, thanks, Nell. Uh, I appreciate it. I am coming from Stark and Wayne. We're cloud superheroes, and uh, as in Tony Stark and Bruce Wayne. And we have what I've been doing with them for the last three and a half years is going around to different Fortune 500 companies and helping set up platforms, uh, usually Cloud Foundry, um, a little bit of Kubernetes, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And uh, I've known Chuck for a long time. We did Rails Rumble together back. 10 years ago and uh, tried to create an amazing app that nobody ever uh, really enjoyed, but so did, uh, you know, hundreds of other people. Um, but it was a really fun experience. And yeah, I just wanted to contribute what I can to, to the DevOps podcast here. So go on some adventures with all of you, et cetera. Excellent. Well, we are very glad to have you in our adventuring party. And we have a special guest today. We have Martin Wimpress from Canonical. Martin, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, sure. So uh, I'm the engineering director for Ubuntu Desktop, uh, Snapcraft, and developer advocacy at Canonical. And um, when I'm not uh, working on Ubuntu and Snapcraft, um, I uh, have a recent interest in retro gaming um, and uh, all things open source and Linux as well. So uh, I like to make things and tinker with stuff. If you're a DevOps engineer, learning is constant. There's always something to keep up on, new technology to manage containers, how to keep everything up to date, what's going on in the Linux ecosystems that you're managing, et cetera, et cetera. Educative.io helps with that. They're a platform made from the ground up with software and DevOps engineers in mind. Instead of making you scrub back and forth through videos and spend hours on setup, their courses are text-based and feature live coding environments so you can skim back and forth like a book and practice in browser as you learn. One of the courses I recommend is a practical guide to Kubernetes. Kubernetes can get a little bit complicated and this just breaks it down step by step and walks you through the whole process. It's awesome. They have other courses that cover topics from DevOps to machine learning, system design, and much more. And each course has a free preview so you can poke around free of charge. On top of that, you can visit educative.io slash adventures to get 10% off any course or subscription. Check it out today. Great. Well, we are glad to have you. And let's go ahead and get started. Uh, can you give us a bit of history of Canonical? Uh, now, I always associate Canonical very much with Ubuntu. Uh, how has Canonical evolved? How has Ubuntu evolved from your perspective over the past 15 years? Well, so my first involvement with Ubuntu was obviously as a, you know, a user of Ubuntu right in the very early days. So I was running one of the alphas or betas of Warty Warthog, you know, just before it uh, launched in uh, October of um, 
2004. Uh, and I was looking for a new Linux home at the time. And I'd, I'd been through a couple uh, and I found Ubuntu and I stuck with it for a long time um, because it lived up to that promise of, you know, it just works and it was Linux for human beings. And I was in a place where I didn't want to just keep um, experimenting with my Linux installations on my laptop. I was at a place where I wa wanted to start getting stuff done. So uh, Ubuntu was that operating system for me. Um, and in terms of how it's evolved, I mean, it really was, you know, um, uh, desktop focused in those early days. Um, I was pretty much on the sidelines looking in for many years. I didn't start making my first significant contributions to Ubuntu until 2010 myself. Um, but by that time, of course, you know, Ubuntu had grown quite a significant following uh, and deployment um, for its server offering as well, you know, and was quick to be adopted in, in AWS. And uh, I think that whole um, sort of philanthropic effort from, from Mark Shuttleworth in those early days to deliver the best of open source to everybody, uh, free of cost, and it didn't, you know, it didn't matter how much money you had um, or where you were in the world or what language you spoke, everyone had access to Ubuntu. And I think those early years were certainly pivotal in the adoption and uh, subsequent widespread use of Ubuntu, be it on the desktop or, or in the cloud or, or your, your own home servers or you know, private cloud. And then in terms of where it's going now, you know, in recent years, um, you know, there's been um, a brief foray into mobile devices. Um, fortunately, that didn't pan out. Um, but out of that came uh, a new strategy uh, towards IoT, and that's certainly a big focus for the company right now is um, Ubuntu Core and Snaps and uh, focusing on the IoT markets. And I understand you created one of the official recognized Ubuntu flavors. Uh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, I um, created with the help of a, a Canonical employee uh, who's still at Canonical and I work, work with now, um, Alan Pope, uh, created Ubuntu Mate, which is one of the um, officially now one of the officially recognized desktop flavors. Um, and I started that project in 2014. Uh, and it was really an effort to um, create an operating system for my family, um, who I'd moved over to Ubuntu in 2006. And they're not particularly technically inclined. They know how to use the computers in a paradigm that they're familiar with. And there was a lot of change going on around that time with you know, Unity and GNOME 3. And my family weren't too enamored with any of this. It was all, all too high tech and whizzy for them. So I started contributing to the Mate desktop project, which was the continuation of the desktop environment that they were most familiar with and then subsequently made Ubuntu Mate, which was a means by which they could continue to use their computers in the manner to which they'd become accustomed. Um, and ultimately that's how I ended up getting hired by Canonical. You know, I came to prominence to uh, people on the desktop team. Um, and in 2016, I was hired by Canonical uh, as a software engineer on the desktop team. That's a story we hear a lot in open source. Someone starts off as a volunteer, a volunteer contributor, and uh, eventually they get hired on. Uh, one of the challenges I know I've experienced is trying to work with a mix of paid volunteers and volunteer contributors because it's it's the work, maybe not the workflow is different, but the 
time that things can be done, the way you uh, assign work is very different. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen this from both sides of the fence. You know, when I was working on Ubuntu Mate in the in the early stages, I was I still work on Ubuntu Mate to this day. It's my passion project. You know, it's the thing that I do in evenings and weekends when I'm not, you know, experimenting with other interesting technology. Um, so it's always always been done at a time when other people you want to communicate with are not available. So you kind of have this, you know, um, disconnecting communication and uh, you'll find that the people that work in the community are very passionate about the things that they do because they are doing it in their spare time. That's a, a real um, effective way to gauge their level of interest and commitment to a project that they're investing so much of themselves in their spare time into something. So um, it's, you know, you have different levels of interest and different passions because people people that are work, working on it day to day have a set of objectives and tasks that they need to get done that are business priorities. And then they're trying to orientate themselves around the requests and motivations of the community. But I think this is a real strong um, aspect of Ubuntu in that there are, um, I think, seven or eight uh, desktop flavors now. And what that means is there are seven or eight communities within Ubuntu that all disagree about how the desktop should be presented in one way or the other. But what they all do agree about is this commons of software that we all work on collaboratively. And, you know, people at Canonical are part of that community collaboration because without the people at Canonical to, to be there to sponsor uploads and sponsor new packages and help with bug triage and all the rest of it, and also provide the infrastructure that creates these things, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Um, and recently, um, you know, I've come back to the desktop team. So I was, uh, although I was hired to the desktop team, I moved into Snapcraft for, for several years and have recently come back to the desktop team. And one of the first things I did was um, we had a sprint with some of our community contributors, specifically um, the designers and developers of the theme that we've been using in, in the Ubuntu desktop since 1810, which is called Yuru. And... Um, we had a one week sprint where we invited them to, you know, the canonical offices in London. And there was a, there was five of them. And I think there was four or five of us from canonical. And we sat around, you know, the, the big desks in one of the uh, open areas for a week and worked through all of the things where they felt we could, could you know, assist them better. Um, we worked through things where, we had more advanced workflows that required less manual effort, you know, exploiting um, CICD pipelines and automation that they didn't have set up in their project yet. So we were able to contribute that to their project to relieve some of the manual churn that they had. And then uh, we got our design team in and we worked through some, some new sketchups, uh, some new ideas about how we could present the desktop. And I'm running it here now. Uh, all, no one else can see this right now, but <laughs> I have the current incarnation of that, which will be uh, released in uh, Ubuntu 2004, uh, which is our next LTS due in April. Um, but the feedback we got from those guys is that was a, a really uh, energizing week for them. You know, they got direct contact to everybody that they needed contact with at Canonical. And 
in order to keep that level of collaboration and contact up we've now scheduled a series of regular video calls uh with that team so that uh you know they're not just at the end of irc out of band when we can fit them in but we we've got dedicated time set aside to work with them and i think that is key to really fostering and maintaining those community contributors interest and commitment by working alongside them and and treating them as an extension of the overall project not something other any questions from the rest of the panel on this topic yeah i think i have a question uh and i think it it mostly to me one of the things I watch uh, regularly is uh, data is beautiful on YouTube to give them a plug and data is beautiful, you know, puts out all this information. And I've been an avid Linux user uh, for the last decade. Um, and so from my perspective, Linux has taken over my life and I have even had other alternate operating systems than Windows. I actually just what I'm trying to say here is that Windows is not a predominant thing in my life. Uh, it's it's usually something that I format over and, and put Linux on in favor of. Uh, but when I looked at the market share in this data is beautiful video, it, it said that Windows still had over 50% of the market share. And and you know, is there I guess my question is with how the market works and how how much these other operating systems, even Mac OS has has a large uh, larger marketing share how aggressive is the how aggressive is uh ubuntu and and canonical trying to be in order to get more people on board or is it more the aggression or focus to be on making the experience better to gain market share or to make the experience better that's probably the best way to put it right okay so um I think we we're focused on both of those things, right? We're focused on improving the experience um, because I think we need to continually improve the experience in order to grow market share. And there's a couple of ways that we can do that. There's obviously um, desktop Linux enthusiasts like yourself. You know, you've you've found uh, desktop Linux. It's uh, struck a chord with you, and this is now the way that you're operating your computers and you know i've been in that camp since the mid 1990s and i i couldn't imagine uh in you know being produ productive in any other way but there are still people that find linux and you today next week and i would hope that ubuntu is you know a red carpet that they can walk down into you know the ubuntu community and we will always attract those you know technically minded enthusiasts you know uh, linux distributions will not just ubuntu you know people will find linux if they're in, interested in te technology and computing in terms of what we're doing to grow market share uh we have uh, a number of partnerships with tier one oems uh, i'm not going to mention the names but think of three and that's the three i'm, I'm referring to uh, and they, they're all shipping ubuntu pre-installed on a range of devices now from uh, the very high end uh, and uh, uh, excruciatingly nicely designed uh, right the way down to sort of consumer level products. Now, where we are, sorry. Does uh, any of those 
rhyme with Nell's uh, first yes, name? Yes, obviously, obviously Dell's like the go-to there. It's, it's no, it's no secret. Oh man, I outed it. Sorry. <laughs> it's no secret that Dell have been shipping Ubuntu on their uh, XPS yeah, the, developer edition. Yeah, the XPSs are amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's obviously a driver for us to improve because they have a significant number of people buying those uh, laptops. And um, Dell would not be shipping Ubuntu if it didn't meet their the needs of, of them and their customers. So we're continually improving how we offer Ubuntu on the desktop to meet the needs of those OEMs. Um, and that's, uh, by and large, you know, pushing uh, how we enable new hardware um, because, you know, devices are moving increasingly to two-in-one form factor. So we're doing a bunch of work there to improve uh, the desktop experience on two-in-ones. And then there's, you know, more interesting hardware that's commonplace in those devices now. Um, and we're working with, you know, other providers of that hardware in order to, um, in order to improve that. But then there's an extension of being successful in delivering, you know, Ubuntu on those tier one uh, devices, which is you now have... Uh, enterprise organizations who are looking to deploy Linux on the desktop for a plethora of reasons. In some cases, it's design. In some cases, it's AI ML. In some cases, it's product development. Um, in some cases, it's like, you know, DevOps and um, uh, just straight up uh, development, you know, you're deploying to the cloud. And they're starting to use these offerings from the tier one vendors as a means to, you know, ingest new devices into their organization. And now they're looking to us to provide um, the same kind of um, enterprise desktop story that you would get if you had, you know, one of the other major desktop platforms. So, you know, that's definitely a focus for us there to improve uh, how you can uh, deploy and orchestrate Ubuntu desktop at scale within enterprise organizations. So I was recently installing uh, different flavors of Linux on an inexpensive, uh, you could call it mini book, not an ultra book. It's, it's thin. I got it at uh, plug for Costco, you know, whatever. Uh, and it's an HP. So it, it came with a uh, secure boot. And with secure boot, we have the hardware that kind of gets in the way of booting things outside of uh, Windows, because by default, the, the signatures the, that are on the machine are compatible with Windows. And so as I had to get the BIOS settings and tinker with that, uh, I would switch back and forth. And, and what all that is, what I mean to be saying by that is that what is this type of support that the desktop experience has with uh, hardware security modules and and those type of things? Okay, so um, Secure Boot's an interesting one. So we recently did some work with NVIDIA um, because the NVIDIA GPU drivers are outside of the, the Linux um, kernel source tree. They're distributed as uh, DKMS modules. And uh, that had traditionally, the latest versions of those drivers had traditionally been shipped in a PPA. And we would have like the, the most recent stable release in the archive also shipped as DKMS modules. But in order to use them, it required that you disable secure boot for the key signing reasons that you bring up. Um, but what we've done now is those NVIDIA drivers are now 
um, built as pre pre-compiled binary modules that are ABI compatible with the kernel that we ship and we sign them as part of our build process. So now, uh, since 1910, when you install on NVIDIA hardware, you can tick a box during the install to say, give me the third party drivers. And if you have an NVIDIA system, it will pull down those drivers and it will install signed versions of those drivers so that you don't need to you know, enable or disable secure boot in, in order to get that working. Um, and then we're doing similar things, you know, with other with other modules as well, or, um, you know, we want to do something similar um, with with other new new hardware that's coming down the pipe uh, later this year. OK, excellent. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I actually I, I'll have to give that a try because that's this is essentially just a machine where I can test those type of things and and play with uh, with different Linuxes and and putting those things back on and off. So I want to, to give that a try. Um, cause I think the, when I installed on here was 1804. So Gremlin is a chaos engineering service built by engineers from companies like Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Dropbox. To learn more about chaos engineering, join the Slack community over at gremlin.com slash Slack with thousands of active members. It's a great place to network and find resources to improve your organization's resilience. So when was it that, uh, the next version is going to drop 2004? Uh, it's April. I'm gonna guess April the twenty sixth, thereabouts. Um, it will be a Thursday. <laughs> so whatever the last Thursday in April is, uh, let's have a look. Um, April twenty third, April twenty third. And what's the is Ubuntu Mate the the default with that, or what is the default? Uh, oh gosh, desktop. No. <laughs> so. Um, the, the default uh, official desktop offering from the Ubuntu project is simply called Ubuntu, and that ships with uh, GNOME, uh, GNOME 3 desktop. And um, my hobby project is Ubuntu Mate, and that's one of the official flavors, which obviously comes with the Mate desktop. Um, they're, they're quite different. You know, they have different um, usage paradigms. You know, uh, GNOME is... Uh, a far more contemporary offer, um, desktop operating system in terms of you know how it's presented and how you interact with it compared to Ubuntu Mate, which is very much reminiscent of uh, you know what people recognise from you know Windows and MacOS from you know um, a decade ago. Well, it's interesting. I, I might try that if I want to get super adventurous with my mom. Um, so essentially, about ten years ago. Uh, the computer that I inherited to her that was a Windows machine would I'd have to format it every year to get rid of all the malware and everything like that and we got her a Mac and I've never had to format it since so um, it, it would be interesting I think to to see and I would love to report back to you my experiences um, to see how it would be for you know, a retired octogenarian um, running Ubuntu Mate. But yeah, I, I think that would be pretty fun. It could lead to one of our other questions on here, uh, which is, do we ever see the year of the Linux desktop? Well, every year is the year of the Linux desktop, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hear that a lot. You know, such and such a year will be the year of the Linux desktop. Yeah. And I mean, for hobbyists like many of us on this panel and such, I think I came to Ubuntu around 2004, 2005 as well. Right. I, you know, it's been the year of the Linux desktop for a while, but for the, the you know, larger desktop market, 
Uh, do you see Linux becoming more appealing there? It sounds like you're doing work uh, to make it so. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Linux desktop market share is growing. It's still small, but relative, it, it's growing relative to the installations of the other, uh, the other operating systems. And generally, you know, desktop is, is declining slightly, but there will always be um, a requirement for desktop operating systems. There's a number of things you're simply not going to be able to do uh, effectively on uh, exclusively touch devices for some many years to come. But yeah, it's, it's a fantastic meme, isn't it? You know, the year of the Linux desktop. Um, but, you know, each year we see uh, increased volumes of sales from the tier one vendors shipping Ubuntu. So we know there's an increase in appetite in the professional uh, market, particularly among developers. Um, you know, you will also see commonplace, you know, that um, cross-platform app developers uh, quite often have um, Macs um, as their machine of choice because that's simply the only way they can target all of the different desktop environments with the requirement on Xcode. Uh, anyone that isn't tied to developing for the Mac ecosystem uh, can be as effective, um, you know, on, um, on Ubuntu, um, particularly because of the Snap Store and the work we've done with a number of the big um, ISVs there to, to bring sort of the full suite of um, desktop IDEs and development tools that are very quick and simple to install uh, and come directly from the vendors rather than, you know, what is traditionally recognized in the Linux ecosystem as, you know, volunteers packaging software as a passion project. Uh, we're trying to uh, reinvent that a little bit and empower ISVs to publish their software directly to users and devices so that those users have the confidence that this is uh, published with authority from the vendor um, and is the latest stuff. Um, so it's really taking you know the whole app store paradigm that is popularized by mobile devices ostensibly and bringing that to the the Ubuntu desktop and the Linux desktop at large. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and as the engineering director, um, what do you what do you find is your ability to juggle the paid employees versus volunteers who are are active in the community of desktop? Yeah, yeah we we touched on this earlier. We're we're doing pretty well there. You know, we had this recent sprint with the Yuru guys, and I think that was a a template that we. Uh, reused from the work we've done with Snapcraft. So over the years, we've done four or five uh, Snapcraft summits, uh, which are events. They're basically hack fests, week-long hack fests. And it's a mix of people. It'll be uh, 20 or so people from Canonical. We go somewhere in the world and we sponsor a whole bunch of people from uh, across the community and industry to come and join us for the week. And we bootstrap them in how to uh, snap applications, or maybe we want them to improve the integration for a particular language ecosystem within Snapcraft itself. So it's easier to snap applications for a particular language like Rust or Go or whatever it might be. Um, and by doing several of those, we've now got a formula for how to effectively um, manage people from industry and community in the same room together 
and you know go fast over a short space of time and get some real tangible results out of it so we're quite skilled at this and you know this isn't a new thing you know um canonical and ubuntu were doing this since day one on a much grander scale because back in the day you had the um the uds's the ubuntu developer summits and at their height there would be 700 people attending those events so you know it's um it's a well a well trodden path for Ubuntu and Canonical, and uh, long may it continue. So I'm a little curious. Uh, we've talked a lot about Linux on the desktop. Has that always been Ubuntu's focus? Because my original um, exposure to it was on the server, right? And getting in, and it's like, oh well, this is a nicer flavor of Debian. Is essentially the way it was pitched to me, and I didn't even know anything about any company called Canonical until a few years ago. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it did start on the desktop. You know, Ubuntu's first um, mission was um, desktop Linux. That was the initial goal. But it, it was very soon after that the uh, the interesting server came around. So by 2006, which was the first LTS, there was um, a server edition and a desktop edition um, of Ubuntu then. So uh and and then ubuntu has tracked the sort of success of the public clouds ever since and has made sure that uh ubuntu is well represented in the public clouds and we work very closely with all the public clouds to make sure that the ubuntu they have available there is um tuned uh to the specific environment that they're operating so you get the best possible ubuntu experience tailored for each of those clouds so yeah it, it was only a you know a matter of 18 months between you know it just being desktop and it having an lts server release and although i'd been using it on the desktop it was using it on the desktop at the time i used to work um doing uh, large data center uh, workloads and i started switching to ubuntu around that time um because it offered a, a little bit more quality and some some guarantees on um, sort of sustainability that I was looking for at the time. So I, I did have a question. So I've I've not been a Linux desktop user for a number of years, but I am kind of curious about Snapcraft. Like, can you kind of give a little like more of like a broader overview? Like, like how long has it been around? You know, like is it supported on a number of? Obviously, I'm sure it's supported on most, many Linux distributions, but I guess it's mostly targeted at desktop. I mean, I see that it says cloud and IoT as well, but I'm kind of curious at a high level okay. what, what's the pitch of it. So the the shortest elevator pitch that we have is uh, Snapcraft is the brand. So Snapcraft.io, and Snapcraft is the app store for Linux. So when people ask what is Snapcraft, what are Snaps, it's the App Store for Linux is the simplest answer. Now, the origins of um, Snaps themselves uh, came from the uh, phone uh, era where clicks were developed as a means to deploy software onto the phone and clicks were a bit like APKs, but didn't have some of the um, confinement capabilities and snap, Snaps were that evolution. And, uh, but then we saw the immediate opportunity for, well, this strictly confined, isolated mechanism would be great for IoT. So the initial focus for Snaps and Snapcraft is really the IoT markets. Now, as it happens, 
there's a number of properties of snaps that a number of the ISVs for, on, for desktop applications found particularly attractive. So we saw a lot of interest and uptake uh, using snaps for desktop applications. So what's nice about snaps is it's a way to package and deploy your software directly to Linux users and devices, but one package published once in the store can be used for targeting IoT devices, cloud deployments, private cloud, home server, desktop. So this one system can be used for all of those use cases. And from day one, it was designed to be a cross distribution solution. So again, you don't just package this software up once and they're able to deploy it to lots of Ubuntu. There, there's around 50 distributions that are supported now. And this is particularly attractive to ISVs because targeting Linux is hard, particularly on the desktop, because not only do you have to prepare a Deb, you have to prepare a Deb for Debian and the old stable version of Debian and the upcoming version, and then probably several for Ubuntu because, you know, the LTSs are sticky and, you know, there are four supported LTSs available at the moment that goes back to 2012. And then there's all the other distributions as well. And for one RPM for a single Fedora release won't do it either. But with a snap, you can create a snap today and it will work all the way back to Ubuntu 16.04. And it will also work on Ubuntu 20.04 that comes out in April and Ubuntu 2010 that comes out in October without you having to, you know, re-upload or change the packaging. So, you know, it, it's, it's that capability for ISVs to target this one thing and hit a, a large, broad audience of Linux users. So Martin, you, because it's called a store, I assume that means that you can either sell software or sell subscriptions through the store. Is that right? Um, yeah, yes, but curiously, only as part of the IoT device story at the moment. So um, we are um, on the roadmap. We do have you know adding um, paid apps in the store, but you can imagine a lot of people that are publishing software these days. If it's the traditional uh open source desktop enthusiast developers it's typically open source so there there often isn't um uh, a payment to be had there but we'd like to enable this so that those people that are looking to create some monetization in order to help sustain projects have a means to do that through the store um and then you've got the big isvs who they've already got some payment mechanism uh, already catered for. You know, they'll have a freemium version of their application and they'll have a means to take payment. So there hasn't been a pressing requirement to add um, you know, a, a, a payment backend to the store, but it is something that we're going to do. However, on the devices side of things, you have organizations out there who are shipping Ubuntu Core IoT devices that leave uh, the factory uh, as a single purpose device, um, a smart speaker. No, in fact, a, a better example is a um, electric um, power uh, metering device. And that's the one thing it does on day one, but it's connected to the store. And then uh, 
customers of that device can then, then choose over the top services to add. So there's a smart speaker app for this device and you can buy that through the store and it adds that extra capability to the device. Or you could add, you know, a print server capability or whatever it might be. But that that's where the monetization exists for, for the IoT market, where they want to evolve a device over time. Uh, and this is attractive to the device manufacturers because they want to, you know, traditionally it used to take months or years to bring new devices to market. And really device manufacturers these days, they want to come to market in a matter of weeks. So they want to get a device out as fast as possible. And it doesn't need to be the, it can be the MVP. And then they know through the mechanisms that exist in Ubuntu core for atomic updates and transactional updates and uh, the always up-to-date security profile and the confinement and isolation that exists between the applications that are running on the device, they can augment the capability of the device over time and build out because they can reliably push new updates to the device all the time. And we have a number of organizations doing this and they even have um, like uplifts in, in their applications themselves. So you can buy a device from Thingbox, which is a home network monitoring solution for consumers. And that can go into your home. It's running Ubuntu Core and it does all, all its good stuff. But Demots are the parent organization and they have a pro version of this network scanning and security capability. So you can, if you want, if you're like super keen, like I am, you can buy the upgrade and then get the uplifted experience. And so, Martin, I also was curious, uh, is there much in the way of games in that Snap store, the Snapcraft store? There are. Um, they're predominantly um, open source games that you'll be familiar with, um, but there are a few indie titles in there as well. Um, it's particularly well suited for games as it happens. I mean, Snaps are particularly well suited for games because uh, games tend to bundle all of their runtime requirements together. And that suits the way that snaps are composed. So actually creating snaps of games is a great way um, to, you know, uh, deploy your games. And we've had, you know, some people doing that, but um, not as many as I would have liked, I'll, I'll be honest. So, so one of the things I like to share occasionally is the um, I, I Comscore released some user data on people's activity on phones and the number one activity on a phone. It's not social media. It's not watching video. It's people playing games. Yeah. And the specifically one of the, the, basically the largest game that's out there right now is doing puzzles. And so I was like, I wonder, you know, like, is there a good puzzle game on Linux desktop? <laughs> uh, oh yeah. I've never, I've never heard of people doing puzzles on a computer, but Hey, it's, I sure it's possible. So um, the gaming on Linux scene is very vibrant right now. Uh, uh, and I'm delighted about that. I, I have a lot of gear here, including quite a capable workstation that I play all my games on Linux. Um, now, that was really catalyzed when um, Valve launched Steam for Linux some years ago. That was the thing that got, got it in everyone interested, and more so... Uh, about 18 months ago when they brought uh, Proton forward, which is uh, the mechanism to run Windows-only titles from the Steam store 
on Linux. Um, and that there's now thousands of Windows only titles that run extremely well uh, under Proton. But then um, uh, I'll give a hat tip to an excellent website called uh, Gaming on Linux, which is run by a friend of mine, Liam Dore. And you will just see the fire hose of updates on a daily basis of all of the energy uh, around um, the gaming scene on Linux. Um, and it's not just indie developers, but, you know, um, big publishers, too. So right now, it's a pretty great time to be a desktop Linux user. Uh, at no time in the past have I fe felt that I have complete computing parity with, you know, my peers that are running uh, Windows and Mac OS. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Sorry. Let me, I want to correct myself. I said puzzles. I meant coloring. Coloring is the number one app. Oh, on. coloring. Oh, like, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. I have seen a few of those, but yeah, I know, I, I know the one, Jimmy, my daughter likes one of those. Well, on, uh, my wife colors on her phone. So yeah. 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 Well, I know part of the reason why I wanted to bring us towards uh, gaming. It was cause I noticed that there was a lot of, uh, in the dock, there was a lot of, uh, talk about eight bit, and Commodore 64 stuff. So you want to talk about a bit about your enthusiasm there? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a relatively recent thing. So uh, the friend of mine I mentioned earlier, uh, Alan, um, we have a couple of uh, sort of um, outside of work interests, uh, one, one of which is podcasting and the other that we've recently discovered is um, nostalgic views on retro gaming from the past, you know, from when we were school kids. And he was very much in the Sinclair Spectrum camp, and I was very much in the Commodore 64 camp. And some months ago, we we found ourselves having a stand-up argument about the merits of the, <laughs> each of those platforms. And one thing led to another, and uh, and we decided that we needed to share our opinions with the world. So um, we now do uh, occasional live streams of 8-bit um, retro gaming battles uh, where we take uh, the same game on the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and then and then weigh up those merits of those platforms. And that leads us to OBS Studio, which is a remarkable piece of software, uh, which you can, you know, use for live streaming to, to Twitch and YouTube and others. And again, has, has complete feature parity uh, on Linux that Windows and Mac OS users enjoy, including all the hardware accelerated, uh, you know, video encoding that you really need in order to, you know, maximize the efficiency of the system to do that. So I've had great fun uh, uh, really learning OBS over the Christmas holidays um, in order to kick off this, this silly little venture. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, one thing leads to another and before you know it, you're thinking about buying an old Commodore 64 off eBay. Um, and I went down that path and then I thought, you know what, I'd I don't want an old one because I don't have the space and time to be recapping 
old motherboards and working out where broken traces are on main boards and soldering in patch wires. So after a little bit of research, you suddenly discover that the Commodore 64 is alive and well, and you can buy brand new main boards that you just need to find 30 year old silicon to, uh, to plug into. And people have acquired the, the case, the original case molds from the 1980s and are selling brand new cases for the Commodore 64. And another project has just come around with new keycaps for the keyboard. And so before you know it, I'm, I'm buying all sorts of interesting components from around the world. And in fact, here it is. Uh, I've recently assembled a, uh, a nearly new Commodore 64. So uh, other than the silicon, uh, which is uh, 32 years old, and the keyboard, which is reclaimed, um, the, the case, the main board, uh, the power supplies, uh, and there's even a re-implementation of the floppy drive that uses USB as the, um, as the storage mechanism. So there's, there's great fun to be had with this. And Alan is off doing the same. There's a, there's a whole world of discovery uh, on re-implementations of the Spectrum platform, and he's doing the same with, with Spectrums. Cool, very cool. Maybe you can, when we do picks here in a minute, you can tell everybody your, your some of your favorite uh, 8-bit games. <laughs> oh, yep. sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, speaking of, before we move on to picks, because we're starting to get toward the end of our hour, uh, I wanted to get your opinion on this. So I feel like open source largely achieved its goal of the 90s, which is to have everyone, businesses, educational facilities, government agencies, et cetera, running open source software in at least part of their business. Where do you see the open source world going and how do you, what part do you think Canonical will play in it in the next 15 years? Mm, wow. That's a big question. I realize that's a big question. <laughs> so feel free to, to answer any sub questions within there that you like. Yeah. So certainly, yeah, yeah. Open source is now the lingua franca within the um, you know IT and computing industry for sure. Um, there there are some organisations and there are some niche areas where where it hasn't penetrated yet, but I think it will in time. You know, most new software endeavors tend to be open source these days, and it would be almost foolish not to to use an open source model. Um, and Canonical uh, and Ubuntu have had those sort of commitments to enabling innovators with with the best that open source has to offer um, right from the very beginning, and has been successful doing that in a non-profit way. And now the trick is, and this is a challenge for the open source industry at large, is how does everything stay sustainable? You know, how do we continue to offer Ubuntu? How do we monetize Ubuntu? And, you know, we saw last year with some disputes with some of the object storage database uh, vendors and some of the clouds, you know, disagreeing on how things were being monetized or not being monetized or where they felt recognition was due. So I think the challenge now for open source is to remain open source by finding viable business mo models and monetization strategies. And the same is true for Ubuntu. We are now you know, uh, enjoying some commercial success and we need to continue to build on that. And uh, we need to appeal to enterprise customers at the right price with the right features that 
what that attract them to buy into the uh, Ubuntu and Canonical ecosystems. So um, I think there's going to be uh, some economic, you know, um, churn there uh, as to how people pitch and reprice their their offerings to, because it's just getting it's scaling out so much more the traditional pricing structures don't work so well so you know we we came up with a single pricing structure last year which is very simple to follow um and effective all right well thank you so much martin so glad to have you on the show it was great to get your perspective and let's go ahead and move on to picks as we come toward the end I have two this week. They are both YouTube channels or YouTube related. The first, if you follow me on Twitter, you may have noticed I've taken an interest in capture the flag competitions, which are often kind of focused on internet security, but various reverse engineering challenges, you know, packet sniffing challenges, all to capture these flags and hopefully win it. I'm hoping to compete in one sometime this year. A YouTube channel I found is called Live Overflow. And what it does is it goes through lots of things you can use in Capture the Flag, but also lots of, you know, computer security, reverse engineering, penetration testing topics, and explains them in a very clear manner. So definitely uh, recommend this one if you are interested in CTF competitions at all, or if you're just interested in understanding the security, whether you're red team, blue team, and more. The second one is I've also taken an interest in more of an interest in hardware hacking recently, which means I'm learning how to solder. And I found this series, it it says copyright 1980, judging from the hairstyles, it has to have been filmed in the 1970s. And it is the clearest explanation of soldering, the science behind it, why you do certain things, certain ways that I've found. I will put a link to that and live overflow in the show notes. The only thing I caution is if you're watching the soldering video, they recommend lead-based uh, solder. Uh, don't do that these days. Uh, just, just don't. <laughs> you don't want to re- uh, risk lead poisoning. However, everything else in the video is absolutely solid. And Chuck, what are your picks this week? Well, this week, um, for one, I want to just shout out about the Clean Coders podcast, devchat.tv slash clean dash coders. Um, episode one, we talked to Uncle Bob Martin. Um, about his book, Clean Agile. And there were there were a lot of gems in there. If you're trying to implement Agile or figure out what's going on, terrific stuff. Um, and then episode three, we talked to, I think he's the head of engineering at Thinkful, which is an online bootcamp uh, kind of setup. Again, great stuff um, about leveling up, finding mentors. Um, I mean, just solid, solid stuff. Um, there were some other ones where we talked to people about how they learned or how they um, manage their teams and how they get people to get on board with writing uh, high quality code. So anyway, just just tons of great stuff. There are I've recorded nine, I think, episodes so far um, this week as we're recording this. We're putting one out every day for the launch. So um, there should be a bunch out there by the time you're hearing this. Um, cause we're, we're a month or two ahead on adventures in DevOps. So I'm really digging that. And then, um, I'm going to get my taxes filed this afternoon, which when I say that to me, at least sounds like I'm saying I'm going to get my teeth yanked this afternoon, but yeah, I've been going through and using QuickBooks online to finish getting my books all lined up for 2019. 
And uh, anyway, it, it makes it relatively easy to get all this stuff figured out. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm digging that. Um, I like doing my own books because it gives me kind of a feel for where the money's going. So um, anyway, QuickBooks Online is going to be another pick. Awesome. Uh, Scott, how about you? So, all right, because of all the wonderful things going on with uh, the coronavirus in the world, I figured I would, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious about this topic in general. And so there's this book that um, my wife read and recommended to me and I've read, and it's called The Next Pandemic by Ali S. Khan. Uh, so he's actually like somebody who worked for the CDC um, which is the Center for Disease Control. And so he worked as a researcher and traveled all over the world, kind of helping out with all these different things. So I think it's very related and interesting. Um, and we've seen how, you know, the coronavirus has kind of spread crazily. And so um, I think it's a really interesting subject, very, um, a, lot, a lot of good stories. So, uh, and um, I, I have an, oh, a book, that was my book recommendation. I was going to make a YouTube recommendation as well. Um, so I've been watching, um, a lot of things around, you know, a lot of math based videos and stuff. And so one of the favorite channels I've come across is three blue, one Brown. Um, and he goes into a lot of, you know, descriptions of like Bayesian theorems, uh, linear algebra stuff, a lot of stuff around machine learning, neural networks. Um, yeah, so I think that's a, that's a pretty good little YouTube channel to check out as well. So. Those are my picks. Awesome. And Tyler, how about you? Hey, thanks. Uh, this week I have found a really cool thing online as I listened to the gamers going back and forth to kind of dovetail back into what we were saying before about uh, gaming. And a lot of people are freaking out about Google Stadia not being, you know, as uh, a panacea. And I think one of the biggest frustrating things with Google Stadia is that you can't bring your own game. And so NVIDIA has launched something called GeForce Now, which allows you to bring the licenses that you have for Linux, for Windows, for whatever uh, system you have on Steam. And not every single game is on there yet. I was looking for other titles that like uh, Grand Theft Auto, I think is probably licensing things they have to keep going through. But uh, I put, I booted up a game and I haven't upgraded my hardware and my machine for many years. I have a, a GeForce 760, so a mid-range from uh, five generations ago, right? Um, and so I can play Minecraft just great, which is what I play most of the time, but it, it doesn't necessarily play the most modern games. And I, I booted up one of the most modern games that I've bought recently, a Total War uh, Three Kingdoms. And the, the benchmark it did, it ran everything on, on Ultra. And I don't really have that great of an internet connection here where I'm at right now. And so, yeah, I would I'd recommend checking that out. It's pretty interesting. The other thing is that uh, I'm wanting to do some streaming online with my Dell R710 and I want to be able to capture the video from that. And I have the other hardware to capture it with like a Elgato, you know, HD 60 um, S, but that requires an HDMI input and the video out from, from the Dell R710 is VGA as it should be. Uh, so I just looked online and, and found an adapter and, and so that'll be in the link for people who might be wanting to take old tech and, and put it online or, or stream it. So 
yeah, I'm, I'm still, I might have some questions for you later uh, uh, about OBS. So we'll see how that goes. I'll be happy to answer them. Excellent. And uh, I've been a GeForce Now uh, beta user for over a year. So I was delighted to see that come uh, GA uh, this past week. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. I, I can't wait to uh, not play all of my games on the cloud because I'm too busy anyways. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Uh, I, I am excited for that option. And I do think that that will be a really fun thing. I was disappointed to see that in the general release that they don't support iOS devices yet, but I'm sure that'll be around very shortly. Uh, the thing that I would love to see the most on is on the Switch though, if they can release it for the Switch and you, then you literally could take all your games with you everywhere. It would be great. All right, thank you, Tyler. And Martin, how about you? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I've mentioned a few things, but may, maybe there's some listeners who are uh, have been on the periphery of you know desktop Linux for some time and might be interested to find out more you know, after some years away. So I would encourage you to come to ubuntu.com slash blog, which is updated all the time with interesting stuff that's going on in and around uh, Ubuntu and Canonical across, you know, desktop, cloud, Kubernetes, OpenStack, OpenMano, IoT, robotics, telecommunications. There's a wealth of stuff going on there. And if any of those things are interesting to you, I would absolutely uh, urge interested listeners to come to the canonical.com careers page so we touched on canonical some people not knowing what that is canonical is the commercial sponsor of ubuntu and other projects and we have a whole host of um, job postings available at the moment and we would welcome people to come and apply um, and if you apply your cv will be in the system or your resume will be in the system and uh you'll uh, be in the queue for future job postings that you might be a skills match for in the future as well. And if you're interested in dipping back into Ubuntu, then there's a couple of community sites that are definitely worth me uh, taking a look at. That's OMG Ubuntu, which is a fanzine all about Ubuntu. That's regularly updated. So if you want to dip into what's going on there, do that. And then I mentioned gamingonlinux.com everything that's going on around uh, uh, the Linux gaming scene, uh, they're definitely worth a read. It might entice you back in. And then um, snapcraft.io.store uh, uh, slash store is uh, a glance at all of the software that's available for Linux these days. And you might be surprised to what you find in there and how much of the feature parity gap has been closed in recent years. So those were the places I, uh, I would uh, say people should come to. And if you're looking at retro gaming and converting signals, then um, I've recently bought a device from retrotink.com. So if you've got old, uh, old kit that you need to convert signals for retro tink have a device for you probably uh, they're interesting little gizmos all right well thank you very much and that brings us to the end of this episode thank you all the panelists for being here thank you martin for being our guests and thank you as always to our listeners for listening to us and have a wonderful rest of your week everyone bye max out everybody thanks very much Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.